If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in chapter 14, and uh, on the screen you'll see verses 13 till the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read verse 9 to get us started. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses and mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, There will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, yes, we are in the last chapter of Zechariah, Um, and I enjoyed uh, watching, listening and watching our uh, elder John Iwawaki preach last week, and especially as he was walking up and down the aisles, and um, I thought that was good. I cannot pull that off, so you will not be seeing me do that, but I, uh, I appreciate a question that John asked. He asked, why do we study the Old Testament. Why do we need to spend several months studying a minor prophet? In our home group, this came up, and uh, someone said, yeah, isn't it the day of small things? Because we've been in this series for many days, many Sundays, and uh, so nothing like home group to offer some raw feedback to the sermon series. Um, But uh, one of my answers to that question of why do we study the Old Testament, especially the prophets, and actually especially Zechariah, um, is because we have something very profound in common with ancient Israel, especially post-exilic Israel. They are a people who are waiting for their Messiah. They are a people waiting for the ultimate champion, the ultimate son of David, the king of kings, to come and make the world right. And they are waiting for him 
to establish his glorious kingdom that they get to be a part of because they are, they are God's people. And that is exactly what a Christian is. And so we have much in common with ancient Israel. Now, we actually got to see Jesus come. We're, we're a part of um, the church age, so he came first coming, but actually um, it was only half of the salvation story was fulfilled. We still have the second stage. And so when you look at the Old Testament, you see composite pictures of first and second coming. So the Old Testament gives these beautiful pictures of the kingdom fully realized. And so Israel is not only looking for the first coming, which they didn't quite realize was happening. Um, they were looking for when God fully brings his kingdom. And so when, when God preaches those passages to Israel, we're in the same position. We are looking for that same future. Um, and so that is what we're going to examine today. What is the picture that God gives us of his kingdom fully coming. God gave that picture to Israel to encourage them, and it's the same picture that we need today. We're waiting for the same events, and we're going to ask, how does that help us endure today? And I think the latest events that we've in encountered over the last few years, but especially these last few weeks, I think have intensified the relevance of this topic for us um, we want to feel safe. We want things to be, be made right. Uh, but what we're finding is that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to sickness. Um, we're vulnerable to fighting and political fighting and church fighting. Our schools and our grocery stores are not safe from mass murder, um, which leads us to conversations about gun control and policies, which makes us all collectively groan because that means politics and all the sordid issues that come with that. And then we would hope that in the church, there'd be a sanctuary for the vulnerable, and yet here we are, uh, staggering from the news out of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a Protestant denomination, that there's been decades of cover, cover up of, of uh, sexual abuse. That many, many victims came forward to the, sex, to the Southern Baptist Convention to ask them to do something about these predators that are going from church to church. And for decades, they denied it. They pushed it away. They said, we're not going to deal with that. Um, that isn't, that's a distraction from the mission of evangelism, they said. Um, and so that, and, and that was the Southern Baptist Convention, but that, I don't think that is um, something that is unique to that convention. That is something that church broadly has struggled with that we want to protect our own brand instead of doing what is right. We want to sweep it under the rug instead of facing uh, the difficulty of dealing with the evil in our own midst. And so, and that's to speak of nothing of the pain and the issues that many of us are bringing personally into our stories, in our, into the, the church from our own stories. And so the question is, how are we not to feel overwhelmed by that? How are we not to be um, just in despair? How do we move forward with endurance and patience and joy? And so in the Old Testament, God, um, uh, God's answer to that problem when the world seemed overwhelmed, overwhelming was to give his people a vision, a vision of what is coming. When you think about um, the civil rights movement and you think about at the height of the resistance that they were facing, 
Martin Luther King gave a speech that instilled uh, fervor and hope in the midst of, of horrible resistance. And he said, I have a dream. I have a dream. And he painted a picture of a future where there is equality for all people. Right, That you're not judged by the uh, color of your skin, but by the content of your character. And people could imagine that. And because of that picture of a future, um, people were inspired to continue to fight for equal rights. And that's why we have the civil rights movement. And so, but what if in the midst of our, the resistance that we feel to following God and the pain and despair we feel, God says, I have a dream. But it's not a theoretical dream that we need to, will hopefully make happen, it's a vision of a promised future that inspires us to continue to live for Jesus right now. And so that's what Zechariah is doing overall, but especially in 14, is it's painting a picture of a future so that we could say, yes, I want to hold on for that. I want to live for that. I want to pursue that, even in the midst of a lot of pain and struggle. So what we want to do is we're going to, we're going to look at this passage, and it's, it's a, um, there's a lot to deal with here. I got I to gotta unpack some things. I'm going to put my seminary professor hat on for hopefully not too long, but I'm going to have to put it on, and we're going to have to deal with this passage um, because I think there's something powerful in it for us. Uh, I was encouraged as I was looking at my commentaries that Martin Luther, the German reformer, as he was coming to this chapter in Zechariah, he said, here in this chapter, I give up. For I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. <laughs> that is the great Martin Luther, who is, uh, you know, the founder of Protestantism. And he just came to this chapter and was like, I don't, I don't really know what's going on. All right. So that gave me a lot of freedom to just go for it, you know. Um, but I'd like to say, I'd like to think that I, we can know a little bit of what is going on. And particularly, I believe that this passage is about second coming of Christ, okay? Um, again, ancient Israel may not have realized that, that there was going to be a first coming and a second coming of their ultimate Messiah. Although Jesus kept telling his disciples, you guys, this is supposed to happen. I'm supposed to die and then resurrect. It's all in the Old Testament. It's all in the scriptures, don't you know? But apparently they didn't quite see it. Um, but there is a composite of both. And this one is about the second coming. And so that's why I titled this sermon, The Return of the King. The return, because the king came. And for three years, it was a, um, a very uh, powerful first coming, but very short. And now we're waiting for him to come again. And so let's just establish this just really quick, that this is about second coming. First, we're going to see in verse 3 that he is going to fight against all the nations, right? So that is not first coming. That wasn't his goal. His goal was to speak peace to the nations through his blood. But when he comes back, he will be a fighting king. He will fight his enemies. We're going to see a physical appearance of the Lord at the Mount of Olives. Um, and so it's a, it's a physical presence. But again, I don't believe this is a first coming because when he comes, verse 5, he's going to come with all his holy ones, which is an echo of Revelation 19, which you heard Emma read from uh, where it talks about Jesus coming with the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on a white horse. 
So Jesus is coming with his holy ones in Zechariah. That's what this passage is saying. We're going to see a unique day in verse 6 with environmental wonkiness. So that, again, is what Jesus described of his second coming in Matthew 24 when Jesus talked about you're going to see the Son of Man come on a day that no one knows. And lastly, we're going to see in this passage the establishment of Jerusalem above all nations. So Jerusalem is going to be established and secure and um, never to be destroyed again. So that's why I'm saying this is not a picture of his first coming. This is a picture of his ultimate final return, second coming. And so what we want to do is examine what will happen when Jesus returns. I want you to think about that. Do you know? Can you picture it? Can you describe it? What will happen when Jesus returns? I don't think the controversy is about that he will return, but what will happen when he returns? That's what God wants us to know. That's what God wants us to be able to picture and to have a vision of is the king's return. So what is going to happen when he returns? This passage says three things. And the last one is the one that we're going to dwell some, we're going to spend some time on. The first thing that we're going to see in verse 1 through 4 is Jerusalem is going to be in trouble. They're going to be, um, uh, God is going to cause the nations, all the nations to fight against them. That is probably a picture of judgment. We know that um, God's people are in the last days are faithless. And so there is a, a judgment on even Jerusalem right? And, uh, and so he's, but right before Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, he's going to intervene. He's going to come personally. So Jerusalem will be delivered from tribulation by Messiah. Um, and at that point, we're going to see that Jerusalem becomes the focal point of Messiah's rule on earth. I don't know if you've noticed this about the book of Zechariah, but actually the main theme throughout the whole book, the main, uh, I don't know if it's a not a motif, that's not correct, but the main setting of what God is really focused on is Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's about the holy city and how God is going to re return to it, restore it. Um, and so we're going to see that Jerusalem at Christ's second coming is the focal point of his rule. Uh, and so I'll read that, verse 9, and the Lord will be the king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft and it shall be inhabited for there shall be never again be a decree of utter destruction. destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So the king has returned to his holy city. He is reigning over the earth from Jerusalem. It is the focal point of his rule um, and then lastly, we're going to see uh, that Jerusalem's enemies will be subjected to Messiah's rule. That J Messiah is going to be worshipped by all the nations uh, at Jerusalem. Okay, and so uh, the, he's going to, one, one thing this passage describes is a great battle. He defeats his enemies. Uh, all the nations that come against Jerusalem uh, are going to be defeated. Um, there's going to be plague panic. I encourage you to read it. Pretty gruesome uh, detail given there, uh, uh, and that is alluded to in Revelation. And then we're going to read that all of, the, all of God's, all the, all the nations are going to come and worship the Lord. 
And so let me, I read this in my reading, but let me read it again because this is, this is where, you know, um, for example, the one commentary that mentioned uh, that um, Martin Luther said, I gave up. I don't know what this is about. That uh, commentator didn't even mention the, the whole second half of this passage. So let me read it and listen to what it's saying. This is after the battle that Jesus has with all the nations. This is after that battle. They come to Jerusalem. Jesus has defeated them. And then look what happens. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem should go up year after year to worship the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So that's interesting. So apparently the nations come against uh, uh, Jerusalem. God, Jesus wipes them out, but maybe not utterly wipes them out and leaves a remnant. A remnant of those who are subdued by his coming. And then it says that the families of all the earth, they, um, they should go up and keep the Feast of Booths. And if any family does not go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up, there's not going to be any rain. They're going to have a plague. And this shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not keep the Feast of Booths. So, is this a confusing passage? Does this confuse you? It should a little bit. This is Christ coming, but what is this language? What is this vision of all the nations worshiping basically at threat of punishment if you don't? And what's this whole thing with the Feast of Booths? Well, that well, the Feast of Booths was a celebration in uh, part of what Israel had to do in, in the Deuteronomic law, so in the law, Every year, they had to um, take all of their, pro everything that they uh, harvested from their crops, and they had to go bring it to Jerusalem and celebrate the bounty that God had given them. For one week, they had to party. They had to have a forced party. Sometimes I wish I was ancient Israel. God forced them to party <laughs> because they just would work all the time if they didn't force them to party. We can't relate to that, can we? Um, we, we should force ourselves to party a little more. So he forces them, God forces Israel to celebrate the bounty of the land and give thankfulness to God. So it's the happiest time of the year because they've just had a huge, all their crops are in, their storehouses are full, and they're happy, all right? Payday for the whole year has come. And God says, you come and bring that and you celebrate together. So this is what it says at the very end of Deuteronomy, of that passage. For seven days you shall keep the feasts of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So this picture of God's kingdom when he comes is that all the nations are going to come and have some kind of version of this celebration where the earth is producing bounty for, for its people because God is with them and they're coming and celebrating and being joyful together. And anybody who doesn't will, be, will not experience that blessing. Anybody who doesn't. Um, so they're all coming, some well, mostly willingly, but there is a threat for those who don't. So this is a picture, um, this would sound like there's, uh, there's a lot of verses where it's going to say that God will rule the nations with a rod of iron. You guys remember these passages? So this is kind of a picture of that, that people worship him and come willingly, but also because he is the king of the earth, 
He is in control of all the nations. So we're going to see in this passage geopolitical reign of the earth as well as uh, purification in the religious sphere. So um, we read that uh, there's equal access to worship. There's purity of worship. There's no traitors in the house of God anymore. Referring to the fact that there's no pretenders in God's house anymore. There's no people who are going to be um, able to abuse and uh, take advantage of God's people ever again when Christ comes. So we all agree that Jesus is coming. He will defeat his enemies and we will be with him in eternity. But there's more that the Bible seems to be saying that we need to deal with. Because there is a problem, it seems to indicate that something more will happen when Jesus comes back. I want you to think about what the original hearers would have thought when they read this passage. When they hear about the king reigning over the earth and all the nations coming to Jerusalem. What would the original hearers have thought? I think it would have been pretty straightforward to them, right? They would have thought, yeah, our king is going to be the king of the earth. He is going to rule this earth, this physical earth, and all the physical nations. He will, he's going to be the king. And they would have thought that based on other passages too. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah 11, 1 through 11, Ezekiel 37, Zechariah 9, 10. We read, it says, he shall rule from sea to sea and from rivers to the ends of the earth. From sea to sea. Do you guys remember when the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth comes in Revelation 21, do you remember what it says about the sea? There is no sea. It goes away. So this language of Christ's return uses the physical elements of this earth to describe Jesus' rule. This is what they would have expected. And so what we need to do is how do we interpret that? Is this a literal rule of Christ on earth? after he comes? Or is it symbolic of something? <clears throat> and so what that leads us to, and why I asked Miguel for a few extra minutes in worship. Actually, I, there was a switcheroo. That was, anyway, <laughs> appreciate, appreciate the extra five minutes here. Because we're on the horns of, an, of a dilemma of a, contra, it's not really a controversy, but um, where there are different ways to interpret this. There are three main ways to interpret passages like this. And because there's three main ways, and because the church was immature in the way it handled this argument, we used to fight about this. We used to fight about the different ways of understanding what's referred to as eschatology, the study of the end times. Um, and what we decided, I think wisely, as a church, was that it's not essential enough for us to fight over this. Because we all agree on the majors. Christ is going to return, and, we're gonna, and those who believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins and follow him, are going to be saved forever. And let's not fight about the rest, right? And so, in fact, the, uh, the Evangelical Free Church, which is our denomination, uh, recently in 2019 changed their statement of faith to be broader about its eschatology. Now, all, now the statement just says, we believe in a glorious return. It used to be more specific. But to be more specific, you end up having to disagree about some things, which I'm going to explain. <clears throat> so the problem, though, is that because we've agreed, to disagree, or we've agreed not to worry about it, we don't even talk about it anymore. We don't even deal with it. And yet I see in Scripture a lot of passages 
explaining what will happen when Christ returns. But because we've agreed to not fight about it, we essentially say, oh, that's talking about eschatology. Let's move on. But I think there is a harvest of faith for us. I think there's something that God wants for us. So my goal is to thread a needle here and explain it to you so that you can pick a view that helps you, encourages you in your faith. So instead of avoiding the controversy, I'm going to go right into it, and I'm going to hope and ask the Lord that he's going to bless you and help you in your faith by actually talking about this, because he's helped me. I, I often think about what happened when Christ returned, and it helps me, especially in weeks like this week, when things in the world are really painful, and even some hard things in our own lives over the weekend, just heavy stuff. And it, I think about Christ's return, and that helps me, and I want you to be able to think about it. And so the controversy is around the idea of what happens when Christ returns. What we are seeing in Zechariah is the idea that Jesus is going to reign on earth, and Revelation seems to unpack this by describing the reign that it is going to be a, a thousand years. It's called a millennium. And there's, in what we read from, Emma read this to us, and uh, I, I'm glad we put that in there. She read of Jesus' return, and his, you know, he's got eyes that are like lightning, his face is like the sun, and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's got a tattoo on his thigh. Like, he's just, he's like the man. He's going to take over, and no one can face him. I mean, John looks at him and falls over dead, practically. I uh, can't even handle seeing him. Um, he returns. He defeats his enemies. And we all agree. We all love that passage, right? <clears throat> We're all like, Amen can't wait for that <clears throat> then you get to the next chapter 20 and that's where we all go what let me read it <clears throat> so this is right after jesus returns he defeats the beast which is the antichrist he defeats the arch villains but there's one arch villain remaining satan so he defeats the enemies that are against god's people on, on the earth these are human beings <clears throat> Very powerful human beings, but easily defeated by Jesus. And then, what about Satan? Verse, so verse, Revelation 20. I'm going to read excerpts of it. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Thousand years. Satan is bound. Nation is not deceived. Jesus has already come back. But then he's going to be released again? What? And then moving on. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This is, right? Do you see the head scratching? So Satan's bound. People are reigning with Christ. But then um, after this, Satan is released and somehow deceives the nations. And they all come against uh, Jesus to fight him, even though he's already returned second time. And then this is when God rains down fire, Elijah style, uh, from the first kings, and destroys all his enemies. And then that's the end. Then comes judgment. This earth, this heaven pass away. A new heaven, a new earth. Um, the book of 
of life is opened. Those whose names are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, are, are entered into paradise, and those who are not are thrown into the lake of fire forever, along with Satan, and then along with death. Then death is defeated. Then comes final paradise. That's Revelation. <clears throat> so how the question is, no one disagrees that there is a thousand-year reign of Christ. No one disagrees about that. There is a millennium reign of Jesus. The question is, how do we interpret that? How do we interpret that reign? And so there's been essentially three views, but the two are most prevalent. So I'm going to throw on this slide to help you as I as I just going to explain this. The cross is when Jesus came, and then you're going to see at, at the end of each one has Christ's second coming, and it's all about what happens kind of in between. There's Christ's second coming, so first coming, and then the millennium. So post-millennium is what they're saying is that this millennium described in Revelation and described in other passages like Zechariah 14 is really a picture of what the church is going to do after Christ's resurrection. So it's called post-millennium because it believes that Christ returns after the millennium. So it's, what it is saying is that the church is going to bring God's reign into all of the earth. It is going to uh, take over the earth in its geopolitical spheres, in its economic spheres, over all parts of the earth. The church is going to be able to bring God's perfect reign uh, to, uh, into existence, and then Jesus will come. That view was essentially, that view took a huge hit after World War I and World War II. And people were like, no, this isn't going to happen. Um, but that's, that's what post-millennium believes. Not many believe that anymore. The premillennium view is going to say that the, that millennium, it's the, it's, that thousand years is a literal reign on this earth after Christ returns. Right? So it's called premillennium because Christ returns before the millennium. He inaugurates it, and then we experience it for a thousand years. Very literal reading. And then you have all millennial, <clears throat> um, which is saying that um, the millennium is happening now symbolically uh, uh, in heaven, Christ is reigning in heaven over the earth in and through the church. So the church is where you're going to see some of these powerful imagery of, the, uh, of God reigning, of Jesus reigning on this earth because the church is now bringing his kingdom into existence. Um, but unlike post-millennium, which is trying to say it's going to happen over the whole earth on all aspects of society, the all millennials are going to stick to say, no, this is just mainly within the church, right? The people who were resurrected and reigning with Christ, that's resurrected with him in heaven. They're alive with him in heaven while we are on earth. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the all millennial view. It wants to view that thousand years symbolically, which by the way, um, both all mills and pre-mills aren't concerned if it's a literal thousand years. It could be just a long time. The point being that pre-mills are going to say that rain, however long it is, is a literal rain. It is on the earth. And the all mills are going to say it's a spiritual rain and it's represented in the church. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so just some features. I just want to talk about the, the pre-mill and the all mill. And my aim, again, is by the end of this, I hope you would be... Uh, and not, not by the end of my sermon, but at some point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you to pick a view. Pick a view. 
that encourages you because the, the, we're open as a church and a lot of evangelical churches saying, it's, we're not going to fight over this. So that means you are free to pick a view and I will, I will commend you even if it's the one that I don't agree with. I will, in, I will just be glad that you are look, thinking seriously about it and I would encourage you to pick the one that you think is biblical and encourages you. And so the features of the pre-mill view um, is that it's, it actually says that salvation comes in two stages. So the first stage is his glorious earthly reign. That's the millennium. Then comes the, the, the glorious um, eternal reign, which is the new heavens and the new earth. So two-stage salvation. First, Jesus rules earth. Then he, God rules in eternity. This view, the premillennial view, is going to um, take at face value and rely on more literal readings of passages like Zechariah 14, which we just read, that Jesus will reign on this earth is a literal reign. He will be the king of the whole earth. Um, <clears throat> and also it relies on a literal reading of Revelation 20, which we just read. Um, and the main idea, you may ask, why is that helpful for us? How does that help us? Why would God establish a millennial reign? And the way my professor would describe it, he would say, he says this. He says, if Satan ravaged this earth for several millennium, what could God do? What could the Son of God do in one millennium? If this earth was meant to be a, a, a place of joy and abundance, and it was very good when God created it, and it was meant to be ruled in cooperation with God and man, then the millennium is saying that will finally happen with the second Adam. Under the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the earth will finally experience what it was always meant to experience, but this time with the Son of God, and we get to experience that for a thousand years or some amount. What could he do? I want you, it's, it's saying, imagine Jesus on earth like he was on earth. Imagine him post-resurrection over the whole earth. That's the idea. What would happen? What could that look like? In other words, the idea of the millennium is God wants to win history and eternity. The millennium, he wins history, and then he wins eternity. Um, and so uh, the advantage of the pre-mill view is that it provides a more concrete vision of, of God's glorious kingdom. Okay, the, when we think about heaven, unless you're mercy me singing, you can only imagine... The, uh, the problem with heaven is it's unimaginable. Well, that's actually what's amazing about it. But it, it, we, we can only have a vague idea of what it's going to be like to be with God in paradise, right? We have a kind of a, a vague idea. I mean, Paul gets a vision of heaven in such a way that he can't even talk about it. He, God doesn't even allow him to talk about it. And he actually gives him a thorn in his flesh to keep him from being prideful for what he saw. And so that's kind of exciting. Man, heaven has got to be this place that... We can't even imagine. But the problem with it is it has limited ability then to affect the way we behave now. And so the idea, the principle of the millennium is it's an imaginable future. We can actually picture that. We can picture this earth but with Christ reigning. We can imagine the problems of abuse in the church and a government we can't trust. And we can say, but what if there was complete peace? What if the curse was suppressed 
by Jesus like he suppressed it during his earthly time for three years. But what if he did that on a massive scale? We can imagine that. And so that is, I think, how the, the pre-mill view helps us. The amillennium view is actually, uh, Tom Schreiner says, it's, instead of amillennial, it's better to view it as a realized millennium, which is meaning, as I was saying, that Christ is reigning right now um, in heaven with Christians that are on earth. Um, and so what they argue is that we cannot rely on... Um, on scriptures like Zechariah 14 and Revelation, which are apocalyptic, which are symbolic, we can't rely on a literal reading of that. They're going to have a big, all mills rightly, wisely, say, hey, you got to be careful taking very literally chapter 20 in the book of Revelation. This is a very symbolic book. And, and books like Zechariah, which this is, these are language of symbolism, they also are going to say that the New Testament in general does not describe a two-stage salvation plan. It describes Jesus coming, and that's it. He comes, and that's the end, and salvation is here. And so uh, the amillennial view features a simpler, cleaner understanding of Christ's return, um, but relies on a more symbolic, allegorical interpretations of passages like Zechariah 14. And so um, the, the, one of the advantages of the amillennial view um, is that if, if, if post-millennial is overly optimistic about what the church can accomplish on this earth, saying that it, will, it could uh, bring God's kingdom into all areas, facets of life, um, then the pre-mill view is overly pessimistic. The pre-mill view um, can tend to cause people to not want to bring God's justice on this earth because they're going to say, well, we have to wait for him to return. So we just need to do our church thing. We can't really change society, right? So the pre-mill view is a little too pessimistic about that. The all-mill probably is the most balanced because the all-mill is going to say, no, there are aspects of what these promises are saying in Zechariah 14 about Jesus' rule and about his kingdom that the church can bring to this earth but only will be fully realized when Christ returns. But there are aspects of it that it can, and so it encourages the church to, to pursue uh, earthly and material justice and equity. Um, so these are the, 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 the three views. I believe the premillennial and the amillennial are, are the most biblical and the most widely held. And so I just, again, want to encourage you to take a view. It's not something we should disfellowship over, it's not something we should even be bothered if someone takes a different view. Um, but, you know, we've pretty much decided that this is one of those, we don't talk about Bruno situations. We don't talk about eschatology. Um, we just don't want to go there. Um, but I think there are, there are rich um, uh, har harvest of fruit. There are rich things for your faith. Like for me, just to reveal my cards, in case you didn't guess, I hold to the pre-mill view. All right, I love picturing Jesus coming to this earth. It's exciting to me. It's exciting for me to think about what he will do for a thousand years. It's exciting for me to think about living with him like the apostles got to experience for 40 days in his resurrected form. He's popping in and out of, of dinners, right? You're just having dinner, and boom, Jesus shows up, hangs with you for a while, goes somewhere else. I, you know, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I can picture it, and it's exciting to me, and it, it helps me 
um, when this world, when I want to lust after this world or I despair over this world, I say, no, I'm going to hold out for when Christ reigns on this earth. I want to live for that. It's similar to a child looking forward to going to, you know, like Great America or something. It's just like, just the vision of being able to ride those rides is exciting, and, uh, and I feel that way in my faith. I just am excited for that day to come. But in the all-mill view, um, I think it's exciting to look at these passages like Zechariah 14 and look at the promises of the way that God is going to reign and bless and say, that is happening now in the church. And it gives you a beautiful picture of how Jesus is working on this world in and through the church. And you get to, the all-mill is more likely to absorb all these passages as being for the church. Whereas the pre-mill is going to say, that's for the millennium. That's not talking about us right now. Zechariah 14, talking about the Feast of Booths. That's not talking about us right now. It's a future situation. But the all-mills are going to have a better way to say, no, we can absorb that symbolically into something we're experiencing now. Right, And so that's exciting. It's exciting to think about that because of the gospel, the world is starting to come to Jesus. The world is starting to worship him from all the nations. And look at this promise we see in Zechariah. We're seeing that fulfilled. And so which one helps you? So I want to close with whatever view you end up going with, whatever view uh, is encourages you that you find biblical. What I just want to end by asking: How does meditating on Christ's return help us? How does God intend for this to help us? The first thing is that God gives us a picture of the end, so that we will endure trials and tribulations. So the idea is that the cross and resurrection were literal events, not just to look back on, but to fix our eyes on His return. You look at Jesus, that he died and rose again as literal events. Yes, we should reflect on that. But it's also to say that, that is going, he's going to come again. And so he will make all things right. In the midst of our trials and tribulations, in the midst of more and more horrors in the world, he will come and make things right. So we're to endure for that. God gives us a picture of the end so we won't be deceived in the midst of trials and tribulations. God is saying the world will be difficult. In fact, it may even get worse. And so we should not be shocked and surprised about that, even within the church. And if we are shocked and surprised, it can cause us to be vulnerable and susceptible to disillusionment or abandoning the faith for other gospels, other things that are going to give me hope and peace and security and make things right. But when we understand Christ's return, we know that, no, God has said this is going to happen. And so we, we are able to not be deceived. And lastly, God gives us a picture of the end so that we would be found faithful despite trials and tribulations. And so the whole point that God, um, why he gives Israel a picture of his victory is that he's saying that victory is your victory. So don't serve the God of this world. Don't become slaves to this world. Be conquerors because you belong to me. I am the true conqueror. And so we are looking to reign with him. And so we don't want to um, uh, be unfaithful to our king. We are waiting for him to return. And so we want to continue to be found faithful to him. Um, you know, I was alluding to uh, in my 
um, title, The Return of the King, I'm alluding to Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm sure you caught that, right? And so um, we want to be like the hobbits and like the Fellowship of the Ring, Aragorn and, and uh, uh, Gandalf. We don't want to be like Saruman. Saruman was the wizard who was good, but he looked into the uh, Palantir and he was deceived because Sauron was showing him, look how powerful I am. You will never defeat me. And so Saruman was like, okay, I'm going to switch sides. He was deceived. But because we have a vision and a picture of the whole story, we want to be faithful to the true king, the true side of goodness And so I don't know what temptations you are facing today. I don't know where you are being tempted to give up on your faith or to walk away or to turn away. But I hope a picture of his return strengthens you to stay faithful to the king. Endure for him. And don't be deceived. Don't become vulnerable by trials and tribulations. It's all part of God's plan. He will make, he will win history. So God's people are faithful to that to the end. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. It was a lot to talk through. I pray you encouraged us with a picture of your return. Uh, I pray that this would be something that everyone here in their own way would process, think about according to your word and imagine you reigning, whether that's symbolically now and then you're going to come and reign in heaven or some kind of earthly reign that we get to look forward to, an appetizer reign before the eternal reign, that all of that is good news. Let us absorb that as good news. Let us worship you as our coming king, looking to the cross for forgiveness, knowing that you secured us in the kingdom, but also realizing that cross and that resurrection is a promise of your return. And we're to keep also fixing our eyes on that day so that we would stay faithful. Lord, we would stay strong. We would endure even with joy in the midst of trials. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.